Today's Dead Idea, we're on part five of our Titoism series, and today we are going to hear first-hand accounts of Tito's regime from people who experienced it. We have three interviews today from former Yugoslavs, and they each tell a different side of the story. Also, today is the moment of truth for our Black Humor contest, where we ask who should play Tito in a Hollywood movie. The winner will be announced at the end of this episode after our interview, so stay tuned for that. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. Today we are interviewing three former Yugoslavs, and the different ways that they describe life under Tito is enlightening, to say the least. The question of freedom versus tyranny, or perhaps to put it in a better way, freedom and tyranny at the same time under Tito, is going to be kind of a running theme throughout this episode today. I mean, remember, the one thing that people were really eager for me to show in this series was both the good and the bad. And I think that today's interviews do a pretty good job of that between them. We're going to be talking first to Sirjan Perisic, a Montenegrin who grew up under Tito in a military family. And then we're going to talk to Edward John, whose Slovenian father had to flee Tito's Yugoslavia in fear of his life. And finally, to conclude, we'll have a very short interview with Angelca Zaitz, a Slovenian and distant relative of mine that I managed to get in contact with. Angelca grew up and lived under Tito. So it should be very interesting to hear from all three of these former Yugoslavs. All right, well, let's get on with the interviews. So first, as I said, is Sirjan Perisic. My name is Sirjan. Sirjan is how you pronounce yeah. it. Okay. Yeah, here you go. How do you pronounce your last name? Perisic. Okay, so it would be Sirjan. Sirjan, yeah. Perisic. Here you go. You got okay. it. Okay. All right. Great. Okay. Excellent. And and what is your connection to Yugoslavia? So um, I'm Montenegrin. Okay. Um, from Montenegro, mm-hmm. even though I was uh, born in uh, Croatia, mm-hmm. uh, which was obviously part of Yugoslavia at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was a military officer for almost 40 years, so he traveled and family with him mm-hmm. throughout uh, Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. But both of my parents are born and raised in Montenegro and uh, Although my brother was also born in Croatia and I was born in Croatia, but we are Montenegrins by, by, you know, ancestry, if you wish. Excellent. And did you spend any part of that time actually in Montenegro or Yugoslavia yeah. while Tito was still alive? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I imagine actually, you were a child, though. Was that? I imagine you were still just a small child. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, um, I until the tragic war early uh, early nineties, mm-hmm. uh, I lived in in uh, Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, again, uh, you know, we were in Montenegro, living in Montenegro. But uh, just before war started, I lived in uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina and mm-hmm. stu- studied medicine in Sarajevo. Mm-hmm. Um, so after finishing my third year war broke out and that's how we fled the country that was in 1995 and uh, ended up in the United States. But my whole childhood and teenager years and early 20s 
uh, I spent in uh, in uh, Yugoslavia and lived Yugoslavia and uh, you know and I lived pretty pretty good life. I had the opportunity to travel throughout the Europe. Uh, a good group of friends. We didn't miss anything until. But you can feel, you could feel gradually after Tito died ninety eighty that things started kind of going down the hill little by little. Sure. Um, which obviously culminated nineteen ninety with the war ten years later uh, after his death. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, again, as I mentioned, my my dad uh, was military officer. He retired as army general uh, before the war in Yugoslavia started, and my mom was a uh, kindergarten teacher uh, so so and my brother and I had a pretty pretty good life we didn't miss anything uh, we had a freedom you weren't forced to be part of the communist uh, party mm-hmm. um, and the same token you couldn't practice religion really openly mm. you know if you want to be recognized as a Part of the society, you had to be part of the Communist Party, and you couldn't really practice religion openly. So, to me, religion was absolute forbidden until after the war. So uh, I know I'm all over the place. So no, no. please stop me. Uh, where? Well, where? I do. I do have a question about that. So does that? So the, what it sounded like to me is if you wanted to be an accepted member of society, sure. then you, you wanted to join the, the party and not practice religion openly. But is that to say that if you weren't interested in being accepted as the norm, you could practice religion openly and not be part of the party? Uh, you could certainly uh, be a member of the society, uh, but in order for you to be like a part of the elite, mm-hmm. uh, being part of being a part of the uh, Communist Party mm-hmm. uh, is a must, right? Mm-hmm. Not to say you could be an engineer, you could be a lawyer or a doctor, and not to be part of the party. Nobody's going to penalize you for that. But at the same time, you couldn't prospect to be part of the elite. Uh, I don't know if that if that makes uh, makes sense. Let's yeah. say. If you're a physician and you want to be in a hospital and uh, top-notch, and, uh, you know, chief medical officer, you couldn't do it without being part of the, unless you're part of the Communist Party. And not only be member of the party, but also being involved in a party. Sure. Being at the meetings and engaged and so forth, whatever that means, because obviously I, I wasn't part of it. So, but that's, that was the logic uh, of it, but other than that, uh, and again, personally, I wasn't uh, exposed to, let's say, to religion. Even mm-hmm. though we pretty much had everything, our passport, we could travel everywhere. Yugoslav passport, it was actually was uh, well received. We didn't need the visas, but the religion until maybe ten years ago to me, Eric, twenty years ago to me, was uh, something completely new mm. and different. Because we couldn't really practice, and and particularly in my household, my dad being part of the military, and mom being a kindergarten teacher and the director of kindergarten, and you know, it's kind of you in the positions, and you gotta be part of the, and you can't be, you can't be exposed to a religion or spread the religion if you wish. Yeah, how old were you when you fled 
1995. So I was 27. Okay. Yeah, I was 27. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, you would have been a young boy when Tito died then still. Yeah, 1980. So let's put yeah. it like this. I was born I I was born 1966. He died 1980, so it's 14 years. Sure. I was 14 years old sure. at that time. So one of the things that I'm interested in, uh, as long as you're talking about um, not being exposed to religion and yep. wanting to be part of the Communist Party if you wanted to be an accepted member of society, can you tell me about the, I think they were called the Pioneers? Uh, uh, you mean, uh, I'm not sure. It was, uh, it was an organization for children. It was sort of um, like an initiation sort of thing where you all joined, there were um, oh, yeah, yeah. uniforms and you were oh, kind yeah. of taught yeah, yeah. about what it meant to be a Yugoslav citizen. Yeah, it's called Titovi Pioniri. Okay. Uh, uh -huh. Yeah, it's uh, so as a young boy, I think it's a start in the kindergarten um, or the first grade, you're being initiated uh, to become a, a Tito Pioneer, which means like, uh, you know, uh, you, it's your introduction into. I would say it's a political religion, right? Part of the party. You're kind of the doorstep to you becoming eventually part of the Communist Party. So, we had to have some typical hats. It was a blue with a red uh, star mm -hmm. and a red bandana around our neck, mm -hmm. the white shirts, and I think it was a blue pants or shorts. Mm -hmm. uh, and now you were initiated to become a pioneer. So it's a... I vaguely remember that it was exciting in sense that everybody's dressed up the same. Sure. And uh, there is no uh, uh, who is wearing what and, and everybody's sharing the same ideas mm -hmm. and the music and everybody's singing the same song. So you don't you don't know anything better than that. So you are accepting it. Uh huh. As it is, yeah. because kind of, if you're looking from outside in, if I'm looking now that we talk, you're asking me these questions, it's like a brainwashing, if you wish. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, it, because you, you know, all bunch of seven, you know, seven years old, the first grader or kindergarten, and all of a sudden everybody's dressed up like the same, behaving the same, and a certain uh, how you position yourself and you sing the song and make sure everybody sings the song and, and is telling you about the, the Tito and telling you about the Communist Party and during the war. And it's kind of preparing you for mm -hmm. what you would eventually or not become as a member, as a member of the society, member of Communist Party. Sure. So, so that's, that's how much I remember now that you mentioned, uh, as I think about that. And, and I'm, I remember uh, very vividly, actually, my parents being very proud of us and dressing my brother and I, <laughs> you know, going all four of us together. And now, again, it's kind of brainwashing. You come out and you learn these songs and uh, to t sing about Tito and uh, the party and mm -hmm. about people. Um, so it's a... Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it was some experience. Yeah, some experience, for sure. And do, did all children necessarily join yes. the pioneers? Yes, all children. All mm -hmm. children had to be part of the uh, pioneer, Tito pioneer. That's mm -hmm. Tito's pioneers, mm -hmm. uh, and all children. And then you know what happens after that? 
once you introduce to it and once you become part of it, uh, usually people will stay within until the teenager years. And after that, you, you get involved, either become more active in a society within. You see, you have a pioneer, pioneer, which is pioneers, and then your communist party, but there is a vacuum between where once you come out into your teenage years, then you become involved there, so-called, it's not necessarily party, but uh, like a youth Mm -hmm. program, right? So you have pioneers, the youth program, the communist party, and then depending on your engagement, youth programs, which Mm -hmm. is also related to communism, to the party, to the Tito, and then you become, you know, okay, this guy is, it's, it's involved and he's always among the first and you kind of position yourself to be picked, right? And voted for introduction into the communist party. Okay. Huh. What about inclusion of both boys and girls? I mean, I know, for example, in the Soviet Union, um, they were, for the time, quite advanced in terms of bringing women into the fold of all parts of society. Was it a similar kind of intention? In yeah, the actually, yes. We, we weren't separated. We were always together, mm-hmm. and we encouraged to be together. It's not like a boys and girls only. As as far as I can remember, and you know, now 51, and always been like that. It's a boys and a girls always uh, putting together and and sharing that ideology together. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I found interesting that. You know, uh, uh, from the boy standpoint, you're going more toward, you know, macho, uh, particularly Montenegro is, as there has a history of the, uh, uh, nation of the warriors throughout the history, Balkan War One, Balkan War Two, yeah. uh, World War One. And, 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 and throughout the history, you know, the, the, the male is always thinking, going to fight and defend the country, even in the communist unit as a boy, you are taught, you are taught, you know what, you are next in line to protect the countries. But in the same token, even though we are mixed with the girls, mm-hmm. in, in, in the girls are more thinking. They are not overreacting or reacting like boys. Sure. They are more like being involved in thinking. I think that was a part of it, involving boys and girls together, kind of to leverage it a little bit. Sure. Because the, the, the boys would overreact or react to certain things. The girls were the ones who are more uh, keeping it balanced, if you wish. Uh-huh. So sure. that's why I think having it uh, boy, boys and girls together made sense. Sure, sure, of course. Yeah. So um, if you... If you had one thing that you really wanted to make sure that our listeners understood about your experience, what it, what is that one thing that you would really want to share? So the one thing that it's always been engraved in me is is the freedom. We had a freedom, right? We had a freedom to travel. I remember just backpacking throughout the Western Europe on on trains with the Yugoslav passport. Nobody would really. Uh, bother, bother us, and 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 we actually were welcome uh, because, as you remember, uh, there was that third beside NATO and Warsaw Pact. There was Tito ne- Nehru and Nasser organized that third 
like a block, if you wish, yes, independent uh, states, right? Non-aligned nations. Non-aligned. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and so what I always remember is that freedom. And as I mentioned in the beginning, I had a good life. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't miss anything. We traveled. We had everything. Uh, and, and just being able to go on vacations, winter, summertime, uh, I think that's the piece that I always remember and, and sadly, you know, led to whatever happened in the 90s. But that's the piece that we uh, always miss, the freedom of moving around, not like in the Soviet or, or Warsaw Pact, where you like, even if you go from one city to another city, you had to, you know, get the permission to travel. Sure, we didn't right. have issues. So I certainly appreciate the freedom. And more than ever, when war broke out, then I understood really how much I missed that freedom. Yeah. Uh, when you put in situation, you're thinking about bare survival, and you miss those days, maybe just 10 years ago, we had everything and all of a sudden, overnight, everything kind of collapsed. Uh, so yes, freedom is something that even now, mm-hmm. the United States, I've been here 25 years. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I look at those days uh, where it was carefree. You know, mm-hmm. you, right. you didn't worry about anything. You live your life fully, even though I was much younger at that time and didn't have a family and Responsibility right. as I do have now, but I always uh, remember with with uh, with uh, uh, sometimes with sorrow, you know, what we missed. Right. Uh, so again, I, I think freedom, freedom of you know going out and uh, um, traveling and and meeting people and conversing with people was something that I always remember uh, as so- a positive experience. So at the time that you had that freedom, so 14 years old and and younger, were you conscious of the fact that you had more freedom than people in other communist countries in Europe? Or was that something that is a situation where you didn't know what you had until you lost it? So it it kind of hits somewhere in the middle because until the 14 years old, right, you know, Tito was Tito was alive before his death, and we really didn't miss anything. And you know, you would go buy whatever you are fed with news media, which is state-run TV, and you know, a few channels. And uh, we had the cartoons at 7:15 p.m. and all the time to 7:30. That would be all. But then when he died, still when his puberty, teenage years, and still had that freedom. Uh, but then I start traveling and realizing, you know, that things are a little bit different in the Western Europe, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are more channels, right? Maybe I can uh, go to the clubs. There are more clubs, right? As a teenager, which we didn't have as many because it becomes more, it's not as trendy. There is no like Western music and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. So, there is a two parts until you're like a teenage years and you have everything. You don't know what is the outside of the borders mm-hmm. because you've never been there. You're not being served the news except what they want us to hear. Mm-hmm. And then when you have that ability to try to, uh, to travel, then you realize, you know, yes, it's nice to have a freedom, but look, there is an outside world that uh-huh. I'm potentially missing. Sure. Uh, so 
So yeah, that, that, again, there are two parts. There are two parts. Um, that then you realize the world is not perfect where you live in, uh-huh. right? Yeah. And that's why I wanted to travel. And particularly, you find out the world is not perfect when, when you know, you felt after Tito's death, uh, particularly four or five years prior to war, when things started really turning towards uh, wars. Yeah. Uh, then you realize that you know, and part of it was being brainwashed and part of it you lived in a imaginary world mm-hmm. that was created for you or the mm-hmm. perfect society okay yes can you so, say more about that so you know you you presented uh, by what you're gonna watch mm-hmm. when you're gonna watch it uh, you're gonna be part of the tito pioneers and you you want to be prosperous in society, you have to be part of the Communist Party. Uh, So you basically create a bubble uh, where you follow the certain rules Mm -hmm. and you don't... And by the way, the books that are given to you to read is really nothing that you can see and read, you know, and try to challenge yourself Mm -hmm. and a society to say, you know what, there is a different world out there. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. Unless you start going out and, and, and again, traveling and bring it back in. But even those folks who are traveled, they're so indoctrinated, they're so into the communism and believing what is serving to them that looking outside, even that world is different, they're looking at the world ne- with negativity mm-hmm. because there is a corruption, there is a drugs, a prostitution, sure. which apparently we didn't have. <laughs> or it was hidden, right? Right. right. Uh, so you know, it's, when you look at it, you, you then you look at the Western society. When we look at it and say, "Oh, that is a drugs, the prostitution, there is a crime," and we don't have that, we are by that meaning we are perfect society, right? right. It's always but, the other people who have that. Exactly. Exactly. So so that's that's the piece that um, you know you, you, it's a bubble that is created for you. Uh, and, and others are thinking for you what to say, how to say it, uh, what to eat, what to watch. Um, and, and, and people bought into it for since 1945 to until 1980. Um, and, and not to say that even though we wouldn't hear about it, but uh, after the war, there, there were folks who, nationalists, who tried to Serbs and Croats, um, even the, during the 70s, who tried to uh, to go against Tito and Communist Party, and yes. it was crashed mm-hmm. uh, by by Tito and, and, and Communist Party and, and his. And, uh, and my under- my understanding is that Tito, for many subjects, was fairly hands off. But one thing that he was very strict on was voicing uh, that kind of nationalism. That, in his view. He probably thought that that was the one thing that could tear apart Yugoslavia. That is absolutely right, because that's why he was um, re-emphasizing the importance of Brastuvijedinstvo, which is uh, brotherhood and unity, mm-hmm. um, because he was afraid of of a nationalism, uh, and rightfully so, mm-hmm. uh, because when you look at the entire Yugoslavia, or at least the Balkan area, uh, the, the all major wars either started there or because the Balkan is an intersection of Europe. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the Balkans, you have a 
where the West and East meet real, really in Christianity, Orthodox, like Serbs, mm-hmm. Greeks, uh, R- Russians, and then on one side in the East, and they were Croats, right? And mm-hmm. the Western Europe, which is more Catholics and Christianity, it's mm-hmm. always been subject of history, wars, um, and, and, and Tito was afraid of that. He knew who he's dealing with. That's why he, he kept really, he gave the people, wasn't typical communism like in Russia, mm-hmm. uh, Iron Curtain and Iron Fist. Um, it gave the people freedom. You could travel uh, again, but at the same token, you know, he con- kept really um, tight control and short leash all of these republics. Yeah. So that's why Serbs and Croats couldn't, uh, 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 their nationalism couldn't come to the surface because he crushed it. He recognized who he's dealing with. After his death, obviously, everything started going down the, down the hill. Sure. Now, when we talk about tight control, people, it, so the experience in America of a government action that might be seen as tight control might be something like some censorship or something, and people would be outraged. On the other hand, when you, when our perception of, say, like under Stalin and the early Soviet Union, tight control might be straight off to the gulag. So where in that spectrum did tight control fall for Tito here? So, so it's certainly not gulags, but mm-hmm. certainly not having a freedom of speech in this, like in the United States, yeah. right? You couldn't bash Tito. You couldn't say anything against uh, uh, against country or against the Communist Party. That would be your uh, 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 you would be sentenced for it. Okay. So, so, so you know, uh, you could. Uh, you know, not necessarily being going like a gulag type, but you would be, in some cases, end up end up in jail. And even if you don't, you uh, wouldn't have any future in the society uh-huh. because you would be marginalized. You would be marked. Mm-hmm. Uh, so wherever you go, either finding a job or whatnot, you they, 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 you would be carrying that uh, stigma with you. Right. So I would say that that was the biggest uh, lack of uh, lack of uh, freedom of speech. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And expressing yourself. Um, you couldn't do that. And, and, and I would not certainly put it in the same bucket with with the Soviet Union, but far away from being in this country with, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of religion and, you know, freedom of press. There was a. Yugoslavia, you had a state-run television and state-run news uh, media and newspapers, so you couldn't read anything negative about it. So you think, and again, creating imaginary perfect society because you cannot read or get information from anywhere else that something is not right. Is mm-hmm. anybody challenging? Does anyone challenge uh, the president or the party or the society? So when that happens, then, you know, you pretty much control the masses. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think uh, I think we're, we've put a good end to this. Um, but the last thing I want to ask you, I know this isn't the reason why you came on this show, but I understand that you're a success coach. Yeah, actually, I am. Um, I'm a little bit of everything. I, uh, 
I didn't finish obviously medical school because of the war, and but I stayed at medical field administration. I got my master in healthcare administration, but also uh, I'm a motivational uh, speaker and uh, I uh, do uh, coaching uh, and training on a side. Uh, and I talk about communication and I talk about connecting and uh, and talk about my experience being coming to this country without anything, without speaking English and starting from scratch and, and, and having a purpose and why I'm doing what I'm doing and what I want to do in my life. Do you want to give our listeners a website URL so they can check you out? Sure. Um, it's a johnmaxwellteam.com. At the end of the day, that teach my kids as well. You know, if I didn't have a positive attitude in my life, when I came to this country, I remember arriving at Logan Airport, didn't speak a lick of English, and standing there completely lost and confused, coming from the war-torn country where you worry about your bare survival and you had that animal instinct, I care only about surviving, uh-huh. to a country where you feel free, uh-huh. free of any assault or somebody's going to uh, hurt you mm-hmm. but you are lost because you got to start your life any from scratch and you have two options to give up mm-hmm. which a lot of my friends and people who I know gave up and unfortunately uh, the mental illness took over it mm-hmm. and in the same token you have other option is you know what okay I'm starting new life what I'm going to do next, right? Mm-hmm. And even when I was diagnosed with PTSD, I didn't want to be labeled as somebody with PTSD because I don't believe in that. It's it's inner drive that you have, what you want, what you believe in, and at the end of the day, you got to love people. Yes, and, yes, absolutely. You, you, you have a passion, you have a drive, and you have to have a love for people. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't be in a situation that I am right now, professionally, I couldn't do it on my own. And plus, I'm writing a, a book on a leadership. Um, so, well, more to come. Okay. Well, thank you so much for talking to us, Surgeon. It's really been an amazing experience just to hear your stories of what it was like. So, so thank you that. so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you very much to Sir John Perisic for talking with us. Definitely check out his website and his career. He's a very inspiring man. We're actually going to be hearing from Sir John again in a later episode when we talk about pop culture, so stay tuned for that. And uh, personally, I was uh, rather astonished by Sir John with the, the overriding memory of Tito's days being freedom, of all things, which is certainly not something that I, as an American, stereotypically associate with a, a communist state. And I do have to wonder if Sir John's family context, being from a military family and fairly well off, may have contributed to an overall more positive experience under Tito. But then again, what he said about the freedom to travel, well, that does fit with pretty much everything that I've read and heard about the typical Yugoslavs' experience under Tito. So I guess I leave that up to you to decide how to read that part of his experience. Next, we're going to hear from another former Yugoslav who provides a quite contrasting experience. He's going to tell a rather harrowing family story of having to flee Tito's regime. We'll be talking now with Edward John, and he prefers to withhold his family name for his own reasons. And when he called me up, he started pouring out his family story and actually had to 
throw on a recording device as quickly as I could and managed to get almost all of it, missed the beginning part a little bit. Unfortunately, due to the medium that we had to use to communicate, actually, I was only able to capture Edward's side of the audio, but not mine. So I got the important part, but I will actually be reconstructing my part of the conversation. I hope that's not too jarring for you. Also, he was calling from his family's home, and so you can hear some, well, let's call them authentic background noises. But let's get on to it. So first, a little bit about Edward John, since, like I said, this part was before I was able to throw on the recording device. Edward John lives in a farming community outside Ljubljana, the capital of Slovenia. And just to establish the timeline here so it doesn't get too convoluted, his father fled Tito's regime in 1960 and sought refuge in Canada. Edward was then born in Canada in 1972, and at the age of four, he briefly returned with his father to Yugoslavia for a brief but harrowing visit. Tito died in 1980, Slovenia gained its independence in 1990, and in 1995, Edward moved from Canada to Slovenia, where he now lives in that small farming community outside Ljubljana. So being only a young child when Tito was alive, most of Edward's stories do come via his father's experiences, but nevertheless the memory comes through vividly enough in Edward's descriptions. And looking back on Tito's regime, he describes it as a, quote, soft-style dictatorship, unquote, and as an individual citizen, he says you, quote, had to be foxy to survive, unquote. In other words, you had to be clever. So what was it that caused his father to have to flee Yugoslavia? Well, after secondary school, which is what we Americans call high school, he joined something called the Youth Brigade, and I need to explain what this is for it to make sense. The background here is the Youth Brigades were volunteer civilian service organizations which sent young people all over the country to build things like roads and railways and public buildings and industrial infrastructure, that sort of thing. And in addition to the obvious goal of recovering from the war, World War II, and developing the country economically, it also kind of sought to break down regional chauvinism because, you know, it got you out of your ethnically homogenous homeland, you know, and it, it exposed you to other ethnic groups in their homelands, kind of showing them at their best, you know, when they're in their safe zone and just, you know, showing everybody just how they live and kind of exhibiting to each individual that we're all basically the same underneath. You know, when you see people in their actual everyday lives, that's, you know, that's kind of like what you tend to find. And so this program kind of built up a national identity rather than a regional one. That was the idea. And for Americans, I guess you could draw a sort of loose parallel to, say, the Peace Corps or Habitat for Humanity. But considering the internal divisions in a place like Yugoslavia, especially the ethnic divisions, you might even think of something more like the post-Civil War Reconstruction era, although I can't really think of a specific U.S. government program that would be equivalent to this from that era. But that, that was more the level of division that they were trying to overcome. And one major project of the Youth Brigades was the Highway of Brotherhood and Unity, which stretched from Slovenia in the far northwest of the country to Macedonia in the far southeast, connecting the country both literally and symbolically. So Edward's father was part of one of these volunteer youth brigades. And that's where our recording begins. So now here is Edward John's family story in his own words. 
actually he was in his own republic in Slovenia by the coast. They built, uh, I think, uh, <clears throat> new roads on the Slovene coast. And after he got a job, a pretty good job, at a local uh, company, I think they uh, exported to join the Navy. And at that time, this was in the late 50s, 58, 59, to join the Navy, uh, it was a three-year term to be in the Navy, and your job was not uh, guaranteed when you finished uh, your term in the Navy. And uh, he sort of complained that he didn't want to go to the Navy, that he would rather uh, keep working and try to serve uh, the Army uh, civilly, through civil manners, uh, like... uh, helping out uh, in the community, working at the municipality, things like that. And uh, he was denied that. And he sort of, uh, I don't know exactly what he said at the meeting, but he complained against the regime. And uh, a few weeks later, his boss, who was a member of the Communist Party at the time, told him that uh, he is on a list of people to be arrested. And uh, there's no other way except uh, leaving. But at the time, he didn't have a passport or any uh, travel documents. And this man, he said, was a family friend, actually. This boss of his told him a way how to escape uh, to Italy through uh, the hinterland, basically. And so then he escaped, uh, leaving in the middle of the night, went to a refugee camp in Trieste, which were very uh, common at the time, in the late 50s and 60s. And uh, he waited there to get papers to move on. And finally, Canada accepted his refugee application or a dissident, actually, and uh, he moved to Canada. But in the meantime, while he was waiting for his papers, uh, a lot of pressure was put on his family here with his, uh, to, to my uncles and to my grandmother. They received letters that his body's been found. He was shot dead trying to escape and all these uh, psychological games. Yeah, so... This is not really in any textbooks and that, but this is the type of things that were uh, common in Yugoslavia at the time. And and so it was a communist regime, just it was embellished for the West as being sort of progressive, modern, and so on. And then he finally arrived to Canada. Uh, He really didn't uh, trust anyone because uh, Yugoslav Secret Service were always around looking for people like that. I remember in 1976, I was four years old. My grandfather passed away and he uh, returned for the funeral. So that was 16 years after he left. And shortly after the funeral, he was arrested by military police because uh, uh, he was officially a deserter from the army. And even after living in Canada for 16 years, and he had Canadian citizenship. Uh, after the funeral, they, I remember I remember vividly, they came to the house, two members of the military police, and they confiscated his Canadian passport, and then he had to stand trial. And he was, uh, first, firstly, he was under house arrest, and then uh, I remember when we went back home to Canada, he went to the military prison in Dublana, and he said he was beaten every day by using sandbags. So they placed sandbags around his body and then kicked the sandbags so bruises wouldn't be evident because, uh, yeah, because uh, members from the Canadian embassy in Belgrade would visit every day to see if things were okay because he was a citizen at the time. And uh, he said, I can't prove anything. If I told you that uh, I'm being mistreated, there's no bruises on my body or 
And so finally he was released, and then he moved, uh, he came back home, and uh, he didn't return to Slay until 1990 after the democratic elections. So that's basically how life was for him. And uh, basically after he left, there was always constant pressure on the remaining members of his family. For example, they couldn't find jobs or they were, weren't accepted in certain schools. They were on a short list of people that were not really favorable to the regime. So how many of you went back to Slovenia with your father for the funeral then? Uh, the whole family. My mother, myself, and my baby sister at the time. She was a year old. Was your father imprisoned then? Uh, no, no, he was arrested. First he was under house arrest. Uh, and then... Uh, since my mother is Croatian, uh, we went to visit uh, that side of the family and they told him, okay, you can travel within the country, but you have to report to the nearest police station as soon as you arrive there. And then when he, we returned back to Slovenia, uh, we had our flight to Canada. And after the flight, he wasn't taken back home to his village, to his home, but he was taken to a military prison in Ljubljana. And that's where he awaited his trial, yeah. Yeah. So we so we came home. We came home in September. We weren't of age of school yet, so we I remember we stayed until September. And he came home at the end of November, beginning of December. So it was a, it took another almost three months to Canada to get him out. Yeah. So I'd heard that Tito's regime was freer than in other communist states, but this would definitely suggest otherwise. Then, would you say? Exactly. Yeah, but that was uh, a facade, basically, or some kind of image they wanted to portray, but at the heart of the matter, it was still quite, uh, it wasn't Soviet style, but you had to be quite, you had to be a good citizen, basically, if you understand. Yeah. yeah. And even now, even now living here, and after almost 25 years of democracy, or more than 25 years here, you can still feel, uh, I don't know, whiffs of the old regime or communism. So what's an example of a whiff of that old regime then? Oh, what's an example of a whiff? I don't know. Uh, when I was, uh, oh, here's a, it's more than a whiff. It's, it's quite a stench, actually. When I was, uh, when I was uh, <clears throat> applying for Slovene citizenship, because under, under certain laws, I was entitled to it because my father was Slovene, grandfather, and so on, through ancestry. And because my uh, uh, surname was not <laughs> was known in these parts, because of my leaving and so on, they kept on complicating the process. Where basically the law that I could apply citizenship for through ancestry, basically I became too old. And then I had to go through normal means, just like in Canada states, naturalization and so on. They kept on losing papers or, uh, for example, I don't know, uh, they said you need this document that you've never been arrested in Canada or something like that. And then by the time I got that document, because I was living here and my parents or my sisters tried to arrange that for me back in Toronto. Then when that a paper arrived, then it wasn't, oh, then you need this and this. So it was stalling and things like that. Oh, another interesting thing was... Uh, uh, when I when I went to the sorry when I went to municipality and I asked for citizenship or applied for citizenship, they said that my father doesn't exist because he was wiped out from the registry. 
And, and my and my uncle was beside you, stand, he was with me, and he goes, well, can I see the old-style uh, registry book? You know? And, uh, you know, all the brothers were listed and siblings, and he was uh, vividly, evidently you can see him being erased or that there's, you know, he's missing for that year in the order which they were born, yeah. So it was, then I had to get proof of uh, that he existed even, though. So that was interesting. And so he had an old birth certificate from the uh, Federal People's Republic of Yugoslavia, the first name of the country after World War II. And uh, he found, dug that up somewhere and sent it to me. And so we established that he was alive, then the other documents. So it took about six years to get citizenship. So even after the breakup of Yugoslavia, there's still a memory of Tito's regime that continues to cause problems for you guys even today? Uh, yes, I can confidently claim that, yes, and state that that is true. But not just me, but other, other people have certain problems, yes. That you cannot prove. That it's like working with the mob. Do you understand? You can't, you can't prove black and white. But it's you know, for example, I live in a rural community, and uh, they get the farming is subsidized by the European Union. And I don't know. Even now, certain families always get subsidies. They're approved. Certain families don't. And you can trace the lineage back to even who fought for who or and so on in World War II or even before. So so it's quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Little things like this that are still in the area. Yeah. That you notice living here and you notice and, and, you, and you, things, you realize some things are not just a coincidence. That's all. Yeah. And so on. Does your family have any other stories of life under Tito? People who were religious were badgered. People who held positions such as professors or uh, teachers who were uh, religious had to hide it. And the good example of hiding it was, let's say, uh, the traditional blessing of the Easter uh, foods uh, that, that occurs on the Holy Saturday. Uh, people would carry violin cases around full of ham and eggs and, and pizza and things like that. And then they would give it to their neighbor or they would go themselves to get it blessed, things like that. Or children of certain dignitaries were baptized late at night, not even just just a priest and a godparent, things like that that you hear. Christmas time, the Secret Service would send out spies to go to Mass or to go to services to see who went. And if there's a certain person that shouldn't be there that would that held, I don't know, a government job or a public service job, and then they would be reprimanded or even lose their job. Things like that. Things I hear also in the village here that people, uh, they know who did that and you have to be careful. And someone would visit and ask questions, how are you? You always had to give very neutral answers and things like that. Yeah, under life, under Tito. A lot of people died in car accidents that work car accidents, things like that. For example, people who were a bit, I don't know, if they were a bit inebriated and they said too much at a local Gostilna or tavern, and then maybe a few months later they had an accident or something happened at work and they were either injured or fatally injured. So a lot of that was going on, yeah. But this is more in the 50s and 60s. In the 70s in Slovenia, it really wasn't that repressive, more so in Croatia after the Croatian Spring of 71, 
when the Communist Party tried to uh, uh, be more progressive or liberal. In regards to the Yugoslav national budget, that was the whole problem because they wanted each republic to have equal share in the money because of yeah because of the coastal tourism in Croatia and all the money was going to Belgrade and that's when the Communist Party of Croatia started asking questions how much and why so much money goes to the military why can't we uh, reinvest into infrastructure or schools here in our republic and so on why do we have to uh, fund the underdeveloped in other parts of the country things like that so in Croatia in the 70s it was a bit more repressive in Slovenia not as much uh, but it, it was felt, it was felt. So I want to ask, how did people feel after Tito died in 1980? Uh, in the 80s, after Tito died, it was basically just an economic crisis. Uh, life in Yugoslavia, I don't know, my wife remembers when she was a child. Uh, if someone heard in the neighborhood that oranges or some citrus fruit is being sold in another part of Slovenia, they all get in the car and try to go buy it before it, uh, you know, before it was, uh, before it was gone, things like that, you know, or they wait, they used to, they wait in line for, uh, washing powder. So each family received a kilogram, uh, per person. And so, you know, he, so my wife was born in 1972 as well. And so she was, she was, I don't know, 10 years old. And they were waiting in line in front of the shop just to get washing powder and things like that. Uh, other stories I have from people I've met, also a little bit of uh, quite nationalism was always going on between uh, Serbs and Croats mostly, and also Slovenes. For example, at school, I met a person from Bosnia, which was an interesting story. And he told me in first grade, the teacher would ask, what football team do you cheer for at home? And of course, kids, uh, in a, they figured it was an innocent question. And, you know, so one person would say Red Star, Belgrade. Another person would say, I don't know, uh, FK uh, Sarajevo. Another person would say Dinamo Zagreb. And then that's how they're based on their seating arrangements. So depending on what nationality the teacher was, it depended where you ended up sitting in class. So, yeah, it's very interesting. So when people say that uh, everyone got along and there weren't any problems, blah, 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 it was always simmering. It was always simmering. And these were the methods in which uh, it was uh, exposed, basically. So you heard stories like that. They ask you, who do you cheer for? I don't know. The guy says, Hajduk Split or Dinamo Zagreb, or you're in the back, and so on. Or so, uh, depends on the teacher. So if the teacher was, I don't know, creation, and you guys said, I don't know, red star, or you're in the back. Crazy things like that, yeah. But it's interesting here, a lot of, pe- lot of people you talk to, maybe, uh, maybe I'm not objective as well, but it, a lot of people are very subjective. And it's true, a lot of people, they had holidays guaranteed. They had, uh, through their uh, place of work, they went uh, each, let's say, each big company had a resort at the seaside in Croatia, let's say. So if you worked for a big uh, socialist-style uh, company, they had little uh, trailers or little houses at the seaside. And each uh, worker was able to take a week holiday or two weeks on the Croatian coast. And it was guaranteed and they just took the difference uh, from your salary that month, let's say. And so basically people found it 
fun, I guess. You know, you had holidays were guaranteed. Uh, you had a place to go. You didn't have to worry about, I don't know, making arrangements, finding a hotel. And, and I think older generations missed this, you know, because it was all arranged. And so the system sort of, so the system sort of work, keep people happy. They have no time to think about politics or think about uh, other things and they'll be fine, you know. Another observation I noticed that Yugoslavia was very good at reproducing the West in a Yugoslav style, for example. They had their own rock music. Uh, they were up-to-date in fashion. Uh, it was quite, for a socialist country, the most progressive of all in the, in the Iron Curtain. Yeah, and they kept their population quite happy, making them feel they're part of the West, but they're not part of the West. Not, yeah, they could travel, you know, which wasn't a problem from other Eastern Bloc countries that couldn't leave the country. Here, they could travel to Italy. They could travel to Austria. It wasn't a problem. Oh, a lot of people uh, smuggled goods from Trieste in the 80s, but not, not things uh, you consider smuggling. I don't know, VCRs or TVs, but everyday things like coffee, flour, jeans, things that were quite uh, in scarcity in the 80s here in Yugoslavia, after Tito died, of course. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting talking to people. Some people are very objective. Some people are, you know, that was great. We, they don't know why. Even, they don't even know why it collapsed. It was great, you know, and so on. So would you say that the phenomenon of Yugo nostalgia, where people today are actually nostalgic for Tito's days, is a palpable thing that you can feel even now then? Yeah, but I realize people may be more nostalgic about their youth when they were younger, not just the country itself, just personally thinking, oh, I was young at that time, and so on. It's hard to separate personal nostalgia and were you happy because you were younger and you started your life, you started working, or you built a house, or, or because of, you're happy because of the regime, you know? Yeah, but it's it's very interesting when people have two cars at home and a nice home, uh, complaining what oh, was better in the past, and they had a and they had a feature, you know, and there was scarcity because of fuel, you know, you couldn't you couldn't drive every day. It was odd and even numbers on your license plate. Can you say a little more about that? Uh huh. So in the eighties, also because of uh, after Tito died, basically things started collapsing. And because uh, he was he was close with Arab countries and oil-producing countries in that non-alignment league that he set up, things started collapsing, and Yugoslavia had to start buying its own fuel. He just couldn't change uh, exchange arms for uh, fuel and so on, as he did in the 70s with the Arab countries. And uh, scarcity, in the early 80s, there was scarcity for fuel. And uh, the government installed a system called Par, Nepar, which means odd or even. So if you had a car at home, your license plate number, I don't know, the last number was six. When it was an even, uh, so let's say Monday was an even day, then you then again Wednesday and Friday and so on. If you're a car, if the registration plate, I don't know, had number five at the end, then you drove Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and then again every two days, basically. So people started getting around this by uh, uh, having uh, two license plates. With the same car. So they would just, next day they would exchange and put on another. But how they got those license plates, no one really explained to me. Either they were sort of homemade or they were smuggled and so on. Or they were stolen and resold and things like that. So that was going on in the 80s. You know. They had coupons for fuel. So a lot of people, instead of getting salaries, they got coupons to shop at uh, local shops or for fuel. 
sort of like the company store. So instead of receiving solid cash, you received some kind of coupons. And you can only use those coupons or vouchers at certain shops, state-run shops. Yeah. So this is all based on first-hand fact of my wife and her parents when they tell me, my, my parents-in-law. So would you say that you experienced more freedom or less since the end of Tito's regime? It got better. I think it got a lot better. But I think the mechanism or the way of treating uh, free speech is you now typical capitalist society style. If you're too vocal, then they get you another way. Maybe you don't get a job or I don't know. Uh, people are still afraid to be very uh, uh, expressive because they're convinced that there's still uh, secret surface people around the village or people following them. So. It's difficult. You know? Some people are paranoid. Some people are maybe too paranoid. It's very strange. You know? uh, especially in Slovenia with the left and right politics, all, all the media is still more left, leftist. And so if someone has a popular, uh, I don't know, opinion that's not really informed with the government, then they're sort of, I don't know, put in the papers, made fun of, and so on. Sort of uh, decredited... Try to try to decreditize him. You know what I mean? They try to find some kind of scandal to take away. Yeah, some some person. Yeah, yeah. So that's the word I was looking for. Sorry, trying to smear you. Yeah, looking for some kind of personal scandal or some kind of stuff like that. Yeah, but it's it's not different than in Canada or in the states now. It's just I don't know. It seems to me that you know basically in Eastern Europe, I think the same uh, pattern or same. Uh, model can be to all countries can be uh, applied to for example people who were in power during the collapse of those uh, regimes sort of held power after but not not in uh, positions that say prime minister and so on but in the, in the public uh, service in you know third or fourth lines i like to call them and that, that they're, they're sort of decision makers and they can make a decision based on politics not on I don't know, value, if you understand, or based on what's right, just to keep uh, things going. So that could, that could be felt in both Slovenia and Croatia still, and, but it's much better than it was even 20 years ago. But it's a great place to live. It's a great place to live. It's, not, it's a very peaceful country. Uh, crime is at a, a minimum. The only murders that really happen are uh, amongst people who know each other. Crimes of passion and so on. It's not like you're walking down the street and someone will mug you or shoot you. It's very rare. So things like that. Yeah. But basically, that's uh, the thing is everyone sees history or the way they grew up or depends what kind of status they had in the society based on their uh, how they grew up. So some people th thought it was great. Some people, when you tell them uh, my story, my father was jailed in '76. They really can't even believe it that that happened in 1976 and. So some people lived in a bubble, some people didn't. So it all depends. Yeah. And people who felt it were then branded as being paranoid or even mentally ill and things like that. Yeah. So there were, there were methods. It was, very, it was very sophisticated and refined, actually. It was quite good. Yeah. Oh, I remembered another story, but this is more not life in here. But uh, I remember, I think, Tito visited Canada in 19... 74 or 75. And there was an RCMP officer uh, 
uh, parked in front of our house. And uh, because we grew up in a sort of a tough neighborhood before we moved to the suburbs, you know, typical immigrant story, uh, seeing a cop car in front of the house wasn't something unusual. But seeing a cop car there all day and all night was a bit strange. And then I asked my father, well, why is he in front of the house? And he said, well, they're probably here because of me. And, uh, and then my father talked to him and invited him for coffee. He was, I know why you're here. So basically all dissidents, but everywhere, outside Yugoslavia, Canada, States, uh, Germany, Argentina, when Tito visited, they had these people sort of watched because they were afraid of some kind of, I don't know, retaliation or assassination or something like that. So were those Yugoslav agents or Canadian agents? Canadian, the, R- the RCMP, yeah. The RCMP were stationed in just monitoring his movements or if anything was unusual about his regular day, things like that. So that's why I find it strange when people uh, talk about the Patriots Act after 2001, after 9-11, and complaining about civil liberties. I remember in the seventies, if you were on some kind of list or considered a, posed a threat to someone, the same things happened and just, you rolled with it. It wasn't something, you know, if you, if you don't do anything, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to worry about, I guess. That was my father's attitude. You know. Do you think this was done only to you or to many Yugoslavs that were living abroad? No, it happened to uh, it happened to uh, people who were dissidents of the Yugoslav regime. This happened to all of them, no matter who they were. Yeah, even some were even murdered by the Yugoslav police, secret police in Germany, in Canada, in the states, and so on. Famous authors were murdered in the late eighties and so on. But it was always made to look it was some kind of accident or suicide or something like that. Yeah. Even in Canada. Yeah. Uh, yep. Even in Canada, it happened in 1989 in Calgary. A Croatian author, dissident, who wrote a book claiming that Tito wasn't Tito, that he was a Russian agent placed after World War II. And uh, he was uh, found hung, and it made it look like it was a suicide and stuff like that. Uh, another, one more example of this, uh, if you're not aware, uh, Tito asked for a confession before he died in the hospital because he grew up religious and Catholic. And the priest that gave the confession was moved to Germany to, to keep it hush-hush. And, uh, and after Tito's death, about, I think, 82, 83, he died in a mysterious car crash. He was hit by a car in Munich while crossing the street. So there are a lot of examples of they carried out these type of things. How was it made to look like an accident? Uh, he died in uh, a traffic accident. He was uh, he was crossing the street and hit by a car. Wow. Well, it's very interesting to hear that that stuff still goes on even today. Yeah. Otherwise, it's a great place. The people are really friendly. Uh, it's super. Just uh, remnants of living in a regime for 70 years. You, know. you can't change overnight. It's not easy, yeah. That's right. We'll take another generation, I think. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for being on the show, Edward John. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for taking the time and giving me a call. So as you can see, Edward John's experience under Tito was significantly different from that of Sir John. Sir John emphasized freedom 
while Edward emphasized more the oppression or even tyranny side of the regime. But I do have to say, though, that I think if the two could talk directly to each other, I don't think that they would necessarily disagree. I mean, they both talked about both the good and the bad. For example, Sirjan talked about freedom, but he also talked about the kind of brainwashing, in his own words, that he experienced in the mandatory youth group called Tito's Pioneers, which indoctrinated young Yugoslavs into Titoist communism. And meanwhile, on Edward's side of the story, he told his family's story of being stalked by Yugoslav agents, of course, but he also acknowledged that most people probably never knew the horrors that he did and lived out their lives in relative peace and prosperity. So their difference, I think, is really a difference in emphasis more than substance. I think if they could talk to each other, I don't think that they would disagree entirely, maybe just disagree in what they would emphasize about life under Tito. Anyway, it, it just underlines the nuance, you know, of this story here, of Tito's regime, that people were so eager that I share, tell both sides of the story, they said, you know, and that's, I mean, at the end of this episode, we're going to be revealing the winner of our tongue-in-cheek black humor who should play Tito in a Hollywood movie contest. And it is black humor because the whole idea is that if Hollywood got their hands on this story, they would make Tito either a straight-up villain or a straight-up hero with nothing in between. But it, but he wasn't that. He, he had both sides to him, and his regime had both the good and the bad. And I think that between Serjan and Edward, I think that really comes through. So our third and final interview for today is a short one, but a very special one for me. If you've been listening to this whole series, then you know that this is really something of a personal journey for me, and it's, it's something that I embarked upon as a way to sort of explore my, my own Slovenian heritage, which I have some mixed feelings about. Uh, I, I just don't know how to really relate to an ethnicity. I mean, what does that even mean, really? I don't need to go into it again. But in any case, it's been meaningful for me to kind of explore that and find out what that does mean for me. But thanks to my family, I was actually able to get in contact with some of our distant relatives that are still living in Slovenia. And Angelca Zaitz, who grew up and lived under Tito, was willing to share her memories with us. And she speaks no English and is also quite advanced in years, so I was not able to interview her over Skype or Facebook or anything like that. I don't have audio of her. What we do have is translated through her granddaughter, Jana. Thank you, Jana, for doing this for us. Jana lives in the capital, Ljubljana, and works in a high-class fashion store. Angelca, I'm sure by now, is retired, and her health is not great, but she's hanging in there. So, first of all, I want to say thank you to both of them for doing this for us. So, her interview. So, at first, Angelza was actually reticent to talk to Jana about life under Tito, and here's why. Jana writes to me, Hello, I talked with my grandma. It is really hard to talk about this topic for her because a lot of people she loved passed away that time. Maybe it will be easier if you write the questions. So, in response to that, I, I sent her some questions, and she took them to her grandma, Angelza, and then she wrote back to me with a rough translation of what she said. So I, I was especially curious to hear what she meant by a lot of people she loved passed away that time. So here's what she wrote back. Hello, sorry for a late answer. My grandma was in a hospital and I've been on vacation, so 
I talked with my grandma yesterday. She told me that soldiers killed her friends and family. That is why she doesn't like to talk about Tito's Yugoslavia. So that answer really only left me with more questions. I mean, were they killed during the war? Were they Chetniks or Home Guard that were killed by Tito after the war? The Home Guard, by the way, we haven't talked about, but they were another royalist resistance movement opposed to Tito's partisans during World War II. And actually in Slovenia today, there is still apparently some quite palpable animosity between families that were partisans and families that were Home Guard. They still remember who was who, and that makes a difference even today. Uh, so maybe I'm wondering if maybe on Geltz's friends and family were Home Guard? Or, you know, maybe they were killed by Yugoslav Secret Service agents during Tito's regime in something akin to what we heard from Edward John. I, I really don't know. But given Angelza's fragile health and also how, how difficult it must have been for her to even talk about these things in the first place, I felt it best not to press her on this. But she did offer more on other topics. Yana continues, She said that they live in communism. It was hard to live as a child because they don't like children. I'm not quite sure what she meant by that either, but she goes on. System of a country was dictatorial. She told me that she doesn't feel free at all. They have to be quiet and they mustn't talk about topics against country, Tito. They mustn't talk what they think and what was true, killing people from soldiers. Well, that part fits with what both Surjan and Edward John said about the limits on freedom of speech. I mean, criticizing the regime was absolutely off-limits under Tito. She goes on, about jobs at that time. There was increase of factory and there was a lot of jobs. They have big support from country. Just a few of them bankruptcy. Leaders were communists. Almost every village got a few farms. They got cows and horses. They helped them for a work on the farm and some other animals for a food. So that part referred to the worker self-management system and also the rapid industrialization that Tito's communism introduced after the war to try to uh, bring them from their backward state, as Tito always described it, to something more modern, and also the government welfare system. And actually, I didn't know that the government supported farmers with grants of livestock. That's new to me. It does make sense, especially after the attempt at collectivization of agriculture after World War II went so incredibly blunderously that they actually had to nix the project entirely and farms just went back to private ownership. Like the whole idea of uh, government owning the means of production did not work in Yugoslavia when it came to agriculture. <laughs> little fun fact. She goes on, political system was socialism, but all the people in government were communists. If they want to feel good and live nice life, they have to be communists, and they have to work as others said and wants, the country and Tito. Teachers and pedagogues were also communists, and they teach children to be subordinate to the country, so they can't think with their head. They have to think like others said. I hope it will help you. And that's the last part of what she said. So very interesting, to say the least. Anyway, that's all for what Angelza was able to share with us. Thank you again, Angelza. Finally, Jana also wrote, you are always welcome in Slovenia. <laughs> well, thank you, Jana. <laughs> Someday I might take you up on that. Anyway, thank you very much for translating for your grandmother. I really appreciate it. You know, family is an interesting thing. 
I, I, I'd never met either of these people, Angelza or Jana, before, and, you know, just the fact that we were distantly related was, you know, enough to open doors, and they were happy to talk to me, and I really, really appreciate that. But it's just, it's just very interesting. It's kind of like family is like ethnicity and microcosm. You know, you have this bond with others in your group, be it nationality or family, and however imaginary or tenuous that connection might be, it's still vitally important somehow. I don't have anything more insightful to say than that, really, but I mean, I guess, I guess that's just human psychology for you. Anyway, family. <laughs> I want to say thank you to all my interviewees today, Sir John, Edward, and Angelza. Your stories have given a depth and an authenticity to this series that it could certainly never have achieved without you, so thank you. I would also love to do more interviews, too. So anybody listening out there, remember, if you have a story of life under Tito, or you know somebody who does, like a relative or a friend, please, I want to hear it. You can contact me at www.deadideas.net, on social media at at deadideaspod, or by email at deadideaspod at gmail.com. I want to hear your story, so please write in. All right, everybody. It is now time to reveal the winner of our Who Should Play Tito in a Hollywood Movie Contest. Like I said earlier, given what we have heard throughout this series, but especially today, I hope it is absolutely clear by now that this is meant to be tongue-in-cheek, this is meant to be black humor. We've been using the running theme of a sanitized Hollywood movie with clear-cut heroes and villains in an ironic way throughout this series to emphasize that it was not clear-cut when it came to Tito and his regime. It was a big old complicated mess of nuance. It was nothing like a Hollywood movie. Both the good and the bad were rolled into one big, you know, happy family together. And that's what it was like. And I hope that that has come through today and throughout this series. So this contest is definitely ironic. It's definitely tongue-in-cheek. It's definitely a dark kind of humor that we are toying with here. All right, so to enter the contest, all you had to do was say who you thought should be the actor who should play Tito, and then your name is entered in a random drawing to win a portrait drawn by me. And before we begin, I want to already give a special honorary mentions to Mr. Uppity and at Mosh Pit Soccer Mom, both entering from Twitter, for being the only two entrants to follow directions. <laughs> you were supposed to include hashtag Hollywood Tito in your entry post, whether it was on Twitter or Facebook or wherever, so that I could actually find your post, and only these two entrants actually included the hashtag. I think that I found all the entries anyway, hopefully, but if I didn't find yours and you didn't include the hashtag, I'm sorry, I just have no way of knowing if you even entered. <laughs> so, Mr. Uppity and at Moshpit Soccer Mom, you just won bragging rights. Everyone else here is clearly eclipsed by your shining examples of rule following. <laughs> anyway, so far as I know, we received 16 entries to the contest. I've got them listed here, and I am now going to roll a 20-sided die, a d20, to determine the winner, and if it's a 17 through 20, I'll just re-roll. Okay, so, without further ado, the winner of our 
who should play Tito in a Hollywood movie contest is... Drumroll, please. Number 13, Nina Instead, writing in from Facebook, who suggested Colin Firth should play Tito. Colin Firth, I believe, was in The King's Speech, so you can look him up. Uh, fairly striking resemblance. We had a lot of really good entries here, actually. So, first of all, I just want to say, yay, congratulations, Nina. You just won yourself a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing, and I will be contacting you shortly to get your choice for that portrait. And now, I want to go over the other very interesting entries that we received. Here we go. So, first of all, Mirna Minkoff, writing in on Facebook in the Just History podcast group, suggested Sean Penn. Sirjan Perisic, who we just heard from, also entered a vote, and he suggested Gerard Butler. Rachel Eastwood, also from the Just History podcast group, suggested two actors, actually. One was, and I don't know how to pronounce these names, but Cheki Cario, who is apparently a Turkish-French actor who was in GoldenEye and a British series called The Missing. Had to look him up. Had to look this other one up, too. Jürgen Prochnow, or something like that. A German actor who was in Das Boot and Beverly Hills Cop 2. <laughs> uh, next, we had Rachel Westhoff, my wife, who... Uh, suggested Mads Mikkelsen. Mr. Uppity from Twitter suggested Gabriel Byrne. Gabriel Byrne was in The Usual Suspects. I think he's an Irish actor. Next, we have Sean Ram writing in from Facebook. William Defoe. Okay. Next, Greg Herridge. Again, Just History Facebook group. A uh, young Michael Douglas. Young Michael Douglas, mind you. Uh, after that, we have Irving Gregory from Just History Facebook group. Joe Pesci. <laughs> I would love to see Joe Pesci try to do Tito. <laughs> That'd be funny. Next, Jeanette Camo. Or Camo? Sorry, if I butcher everybody's names here, I'm probably doing a horrible job. Just History Facebook group. Steve Buscemi. Fritz O'Brien, Just History Facebook group, suggests William Defoe, but only if a romantic comedy. <laughs> well, I think that's a fairly decent chance if Hollywood got their hands on this. Next, Denise McEachran Gillis. Probably pronounced that one wrong, too. Writing in from Facebook, Christopher Walken. I would love to see Christopher Walken do Tito. At Mosh Pit Soccer Mom, writing in from Twitter, suggested Christian Bale. And uh, Mary from Humanistic Paganism, writing in in a comment on an article advertising this series on humanisticpaganism.com. My old haunt, actually. Website that I started. Suggests Steve Buscemi again. And finally, our last, well, our second to last entrant, Harris Penda Pendich, writing in from Facebook. Harris suggests Richard Burton because he already did play Tito in a movie. <laughs> I had to look this up, but he played Tito in a Yugoslav film from 1973 called The Battle of Sutjeska. And if you want to look that up, I, I see you can watch the full thing on YouTube. It's spelled S-U-T-J-E-S-K-A, Battle of Sutjeska. So there you go. Thank you to all of the entrants to our contest. You really made this fun. Great suggestions. But the last one that I want to say, this is the one that gets the award for the most creative suggestion. 
So <laughs> this one goes to Kristaps Andresens, which we've heard from before on this show, actually, and he has his own podcast, The Eastern Border. I've talked it up plenty of times. The most creative suggestion for who should play Tito in a Hollywood movie, Kristaps says himself, meaning Kristaps. Kristaps should be the one who plays Tito in a Hollywood movie. <laughs> well, okay, Kristaps, very good. I should have expected no less from you. Good luck in your budding acting career. <laughs> For those of you who didn't win or who didn't vote, well, no matter, because you can actually still get your portrait drawn by supporting the show at www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod. $5 a month supports the show and gets you a portrait. I actually drew Sir John Perisic as a 19th century Montenegrin warrior. That's something I offered in exchange for coming on the show, and I offered the same to my other interviewees, and I would still love to do a portrait for them should they take me up on it. So I look forward to that. Next, uh, just a little reminder, after today, as we mentioned in our anniversary episode about the History Channel, we will be moving to our new bi-weekly schedule, so no episode next week. But after that, we'll be back with more Titoism and an interview of a different sort with Doctor of Arts Noah Charney, who is going to talk to us about artistic expression and artistic freedom in Tito's Yugoslavia. We'll also hear about Yugoslav pop culture as well, and Sirjan is going to have more to say about that as well. So that should be a fun one. We'll see you then. Thanks, everybody. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. <laughs>